this thing working. All right, there we go. Sounds like we're back. Crew's getting back together. Can't hold the mic droppers down. We're not going anywhere, not going away. Big, big news day, right, guys? Uh, we are going to be talking, as I mentioned, about um, the Trump indictment first and foremost, because I don't think that we can avoid that. And the second thing we're going to be talking about is this development that I was just mentioning with Gavin Newsom creating this new political entity that is designed essentially to kind of replace or at least fill this massive void that has been um, in the Democratic side of the aisle. I'm going to talk about some of the infrastructure that the Democrats are really lacking that allowed uh, really the Lincoln Project to kind of fill a void that needed to be filled. We, we obviously identified some of the problems the Democrats were having as they were trying to take on Donald Trump filled in that void, but it would appear as though the Democrats are kind of finally figuring it out and getting it, at least Gavin Newsom is. And I want to talk about those dynamics and talk about what that means, because it's going to be, I think, extraordinarily important and very, very impactful uh, in the coming presidential campaign. I'm also, I don't know if any of you guys visited uh, on the uh, Twitter spaces I just had with Jennifer Horn, Susan Del Percio, and Rachel Bite-Koyfer. Um, I disagree a lot with uh, Dr. Bike Koifer. I think she's got a great brain for this stuff. I think she's a fantastic academic, not a practitioner. Don't mean that as a slight at all. We agree on a lot of things, but we disagree on a lot of things. I'm a professional strategist. I'm a professional campaign professional. Um, she comes, uh, as many Democrats do increasingly, it's a big trend over the past 10, 15 years, a lot more academics who come in with academic work and try to apply that to professional political campaigns. Doesn't work very well, okay? Uh, but if you if were on that Twitter spaces, again, it's just an hour and a half ago as things were breaking, it was really, really insightful to see the difference between how way academics approach these problems and the way political professionals do. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment, okay? But first, and let's get started um, with this discussion on the indictments, okay? A couple of things I want you all to remember. The first is, these are just the first indictments, okay? This is just the beginning, and I think for a lot of us, uh, we've deserved this, right? We've deserved this moment. We've been waiting for this moment, wondering if it's actually going to come. Yes, he is going to be arrested. Yes, he is likely going to be, uh, possibly going to be handcuffed, possibly a perp walk, probably not. I think that's really up to him or not. I know that the Manhattan DA's office and the prosecutor is working with a secret service that still manages the detail for the former president on whether or not that would be um, likely or whether they want to have that kind of a spectacle or what that's going to mean. Um, there is, I think, probably a good healthy debate, and this is gonna sound really peculiar, but with Trump's political team, discerning as to whether or not this is a good idea or not, to have him actually paraded down a New York street, hand behind him with a, 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 a mob of people and press around him. What does that narrative mean? Does that look good or does that look bad? My strong suspect, uh, I would strongly suspect it is not a good idea. It's not a good look, um, certainly not in a general election contest, but even with the Republican base, I think it's a big mistake. Now, I, I don't have the same instincts that Donald Trump does for garnering media or for that perception, but I don't think a person who has built his entire persona around being kind of a winner and fooling people into thinking that he's this guy who's got some sort of a magic touch, looks really good, being handcuffed and being kind of walked uh, by law enforcement into uh, being booked. So we'll see. Uh, the, the, the most likely scenario I would suspect is they probably book him early in the morning. There will still be a media circus. I guarantee you there's going to be a 24-hour media hunt 
around the entire building waiting and watching for some sort of you know limousine to pull up in the back and kind of sneak him in but they will probably bring him in before the 7 a.m hour uh, in order to get him in with the least likelihood of a mob probably bring him in without handcuffs there will be there will be a mug shot okay so get uh your your favorite t-shirt designer ready or be ready to purchase that t-shirt with a mug shot coffee mug whatever it is that you do um uh, or want to get it will probably be the most uh widely distributed digital image uh since kim kardashian probably broke the internet a few years ago with some of her photo displays i, I think this is going to be a very significant moment but again this is really important. First indictment. And it's also the weakest charges that are being brought to him with the least amount of penalty. I know there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not um, this should be being brought and whether it's normal for this to be brought on campaign finance violations. The truth of the matter is that we're talking about fraud here. Uh, it's not just campaign violations, although it is that. There are 30, indi 30 counts to this indictment, a lot of which the public has not been made aware of yet. So it's not just what the right-wing echo chamber is trying to consolidate or narrow this as. This is pretty expansive. Regardless of whether or not this is rises to the merit of actually bringing these types of charges, booking a former president of the United States, a first in our history to have a former president brought up on, on criminal charges, um, this is a, um, a, a, a significant political moment. Um, again, not just for the history of the country. I think we've all been calloused to, to, to all of those developments. This is about the brass knuckle politics of, of Donald Trump returning to the White House and whether or not this hurts or whether this helps him. Okay. Now, uh, I've shared, for those of you that have been following, the way I'm looking at this race, sizing up, I'm, I want to say this now, and of course, this can all change and things oftentimes do in politics. But when we're looking at the math, when we're looking at the actual hard data behind what is developing here, uh, the fundamentals of this race strongly, strongly lean towards a Biden reelection. Okay, not not weakly, not marginally. I would suggest quite strongly, and the reason why is because first and foremost, you have to understand it's extremely difficult to unseat an incumbent. And it's not just difficult to unseat an incumbent um, president. It's very difficult to unseat any incumbent executive, whether it's a mayor, a governor, or a president. By and large, the average voter, voter psychology, leaned quite heavily towards partisanship, of course, but after partisanship as to really, you really have to make a strong case that the president of the United States has to be removed. And in that instance, you also have to you have to go through a two-step process. First, you have to convince the voter that the person in office needs to be removed. That's a pretty high threshold. But the second step, which is even higher, and that is that the person that you're replacing them with uh, is better than the person that you are replacing uh, the, the incumbent with. And that's something that you haven't seen in polling yet. My guess is pollsters will start to ask this question as we get closer to the campaign itself. And that question is going to be, do you feel better now under Joe Biden or, or, or under Donald Trump? And uh, there's going to be a huge partisan break to that. But it's also, I think, especially if you look at independence, it's going to break pretty considerably towards Biden. Uh, that shaking people out of that 
that space is going to be extraordinarily difficult. So when I look at this clinically, when I'm looking at this objectively, when I'm looking at the data, if I'm looking at this as a campaign professional and trying to set the narrative to determine the battleground of where I want to have this fight for my candidate and go into this campaign, I'm looking at really strong fundamentals um, for Joe Biden. And it's not just for Joe Biden. It's also very strong fundamentals for any incumbent in this position. Okay. There are two variables, two major variables. There will always be many that pop up again at this time in the election cycle. We were just uh, going into, um, um, or were we, uh, going into, into COVID shutdowns and sheltering in place. Was that a year out or was that a year and a half out? That was a year out, right? So we're, we're what year is this? We're in 2023, we've got 2024 coming up. Folks, there's a hell of a lot of shit's going to happen here, okay? A ton of stuff is going to happen. But what I'm keeping my eye on at this point that has the most likelihood of moving these fundamentals is first, of course, the economy. This is really the most important one. And it has been since the late 1980s, okay, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Once, once foreign policy lost its salience in the mind of American voters, the economy has, during that entire time, during my entire professional career has been the main driver of political opinion and shifting voter attitudes. Okay, that's that has been one of the luxuries that we have had as a country during this Pax Americana, during this peaceful time of American hegemony in the world. Um, I'm, you know, early 50s now. Prior to that, in the Reagan years, the first Bush term, the Carter years, the Ford years, the Nixon years, all the Cold War years, foreign policy was the top issue. It was more important. I don't know if, if people remember this much. If you're if you're under fifty, you, you know certainly if you're under forty, you don't know what that world looks like. But if you're under fifty, you probably don't remember very much an America that was consumed by foreign policy dictates. That is emerging again as a big issue. It's not just the war in Ukraine, which is very significant. There is the China threat, which is very real and starting to become very impactful, and it's going to start driving our economic concerns. Okay, There are very, very, very few political operatives on either side of the aisle that have run campaigns when foreign policy is the top issue and the concerns of voters' minds. Okay, I say that because, again, uh, uh, I wasn't certainly involved at that level of campaign operations. I was just out of high school. I'm 51 now, almost 52, 51. We're going to hold on to that as long as we can. And I, in high school, uh, foreign policy was the, was the driver of, of voter opinion. Once the wall fell, the economy, foreign policy dropped to way behind, and the economy became the driver, and the economy has been the top issue on the minds of voters for the past 30 or so years, 34, 35 years. Okay, it's very important because the world is going to change and the way we campaign is going to change. Ironically, the Democrats are in a much stronger position on the foreign policy front than the Republicans are. That's one of the crazy ass changes that have gone on. It used to be the Reagans of the world that were anti-Russia, that were pro-NATO, that were investing heavily in, uh, in having a strong presence around the world. And it was Democrats that were trying to pull us back and become a little bit more isolationist, questioning uh, America's military might. It's the exact opposite now, okay? And what I will tell you is having a strong foreign policy 
is a very, very significant advantage to have as a candidate and as a party when foreign policy is emergent as a top issue in the minds of voters. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off topic here. The fundamentals, as long as they're focused on and the economy continues to go where it's at and or improve, inflation is still a big issue. Uh, cost of living is a very significant issue. Uh, economic growth, stagflation, these things become uh, part of the issues matrix. Voters do not feel good about where the economy is heading. But remember, look at the last midterms. We were, it was probably the most significant midterm in the history of modern polling where uh, voters went to the ballot box saying, three-fourths of them were saying, 75% were saying the economy is headed in the wrong direction, but still voted in, in, uh, in considerable numbers for the Democrats, including Republicans, because of the emergence of things like uh, abortion and cultural issues, okay? So not great ground for Biden, but I wouldn't say bad either. And what I would suggest is that there are other issues that can dominate as they did in the 22 election cycle. So that issue and the foreign policy issue, I think really do lead to a rally around the flag effect so much such as it might exist in this environment where it's very, very difficult to make the case that we need to change horses uh, in the middle of this race, okay? The power of the incumbency is extraordinarily significant. Can't underscore that enough when you're running a campaign because you have to convince voters not only that the candidate needs to be replaced, but more importantly, that the alternative is better than the person that you have. That's a really, really significant burden, okay? I don't think that the Republicans are, are, are even going to be able to close on the first deal. And even if they were, I think it's really hard to make the case on the second. So very significant, my opinion, all the data, all the evidence I'm looking at suggests very strongly that um, the um, an incumbent in this position is in a very, very uh, strong place. Okay. Now, there are a lot of people that are looking at the polling and saying, what does what do the what do the indictments mean then? The truth of the matter is, at least on this first one, I think it means uh, not not a whole lot in terms of changing the fundamental trajectory of the race. This is not good news for Donald Trump. There's no way to spin that. You're probably hearing that a lot on social media. If you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're following any sort of social media stuff, you're hearing especially Republicans going, you just ensured Donald Trump's going to win the White House. You just made sure that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. Those are two very different things. So let me tackle both of those. The first is, I do believe this is actually as bad as it is legally for Donald Trump. And it's bad. Okay, and remember, this is the first. As bad as it is legally, in the Republican primary, let me say that again, in the Republican primary, it's good news for Donald Trump. It's really bad news for Ron DeSantis. Okay? If you saw Ron DeSantis's response, I guarantee that response is something that the team, his team has been working on uh, for at least a week and a half especially after the blowback he got for the press conference that he had, which brought his numbers down in the polling, there's really little that a Republican in the primary can do when the, when the Republican base is starting to rally around Donald Trump again, okay? So DeSantis, remember, and I said this on a, a couple shows ago, or maybe it was last uh, the last show we talked about, DeSantis's support levels are based on two things. One is people who genuinely like and support Ron DeSantis. That's much thinner than most people realize, okay? Because not a lot of people know who he is. They know that he's the most 
viable alternative, but that's based on, on literally nothing. It's based off of what we call name ID. And name ID is not an important factor in determining the outcome of races. This is where I significantly disagree with, with a, a Rachel Beitkoifer, okay? I significantly disagree with most, ac most academics, and I significantly disagree with most people who have never run a political campaign before. Most people believe that voter a name ID is the most important factor or, or it gives you a very significant advantage. Not necessarily, in fact, I would even say not usually. That's not what's driving voter behavior. If that were the case, then yard signs would be the only way that we communicated with people and just littered everybody's yards with a bunch of yard signs and that would be the way that you actually win elections. We know quantifiably that that's not true. I can tell you personally, I know that anecdotally that's not true. We never, ever, ever want even our school board candidates investing in yard signs because they do not work. Name ID is not a driver of voter behavior. It's not, okay? So back to DeSantis. Half of his base is driven by this name ID and can respond to voters, respond to the, uh, the pollsters by saying, yeah, okay, Ron DeSantis is the alternative, which gets me to the second point is the other half of, the, of his base, and I think it's the larger half, it's not half, it's the larger portion, are the people that don't want Trump to run again because they're concerned about his viability. So they're looking for the next best winner. Those two elements combined create Ron DeSantis' base level of support. But remember, folks, if you're looking at the polling data, it's still in the mid-20s, in some cases the high 20s. There are a few outliers that will get a little bit higher than that, but when you look at the average of all the polling data, DeSantis is only in the mid to high 20s range. That's not a strong position to be in, especially when you're not known, okay? If that were the case, Howard Dean would have been president. Hillary Clinton would have been president. Um, the, 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 the whole history of American politics is littered with front runners who ran out of gas because as the campaign becomes real, uh, the, the, a downward trajectory actually can kill a campaign. And that's really, really important, okay? So when everyone's talking, DeSantis right now, let me say this right now as of whatever this is, March 20, whatever it is, late March, at this moment in time, the most overrated candidate in the race is not Donald Trump, it's Ron DeSantis. He is actually, right now, just, uh, he, he's becoming a, 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 uh, a vessel for all of the intentions of Republicans looking for something different, who don't like Donald Trump, who don't think Donald Trump can win, who are scared that all the negative stuff that's coming is going to make Donald Trump too weak to beat Joe Biden and they're looking for a winner. It's all the scaredy cats out there. It's all the, all the Republican enablers that will all go back to Donald Trump, not all, but all, most, the vast majority will go back to Donald Trump as DeSantis starts to fade and as, as Trump gets back into fighting form. That's where we're at, okay? Trump's base levels of support have never dipped below the 30 mark. He's never dipped below a third. That's extraordinarily strong base level support for a former president in a political party of either party at any time in the history of the country, okay? It doesn't mean he's overwhelmingly strong. It means he has a significant grip on the base mathematically in the Republican primary, okay? I don't care who I'm... Uh, 
who's looking at the numbers, it's hard to make the case that Donald Trump is not the front runner by a considerable degree with very significant advantages in this primary. That is where all the evidence is pointing, okay? But, and this is an important but, he is losing support, considerable support amongst independent voters. And it's not just Donald Trump, DeSantis in the Emerson poll uh, that came out a, a week ago showed his negatives. Ron DeSantis's negatives are at 61% amongst independents. You can't win a national contest with that kind of negative support. And he's just starting, okay? Those negatives are gonna go higher. They're not gonna go lower, especially when Trump gets done with them. And let's say, some, let's say Mike Madrid's full of shit. He's completely wrong. Mike doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and DeSantis steamrolls Trump or beats him closely or whatever, but, but somehow DeSantis emerges as the victor. And let's say Mike's right, wrong again, and, and, and Trump doesn't bolt for a third-party campaign, like I've been saying, because he absolutely will if he were to slip to DeSantis. But let's say Mike's wrong again, and Trump wholeheartedly says, Every, you're not really MAGA unless you support Ron DeSantis. This is the most important thing in my life. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that Ron DeSantis is elected president, Right? You're still not getting that base level of not that base level of support combined with enough independence to get elected. There's no room there. You have to win amongst independents. And that base level of, of support, that negativity that's going to come out of this primary, coupled with Joe Biden and the Democrats, and we're going to get to Gavin Newsom and what he's going to come in on DeSantis with or, or, or Trump, the likely nominee, will be and what that means with this new infrastructure he's building. It's going to be extraordinarily hard to move your already negative starting point to a position where that flips and then you start to win positively against Joe Biden in a vacuum. Anything can happen, but I've very I have seen it happen before. We can run through some of those those instances if you want to hear them, but they are exceptions and they're extraordinary exceptions. They're so exceptional that I can name the two or three of them off the top of my head in the 30 years I've been doing this. It just does not happen in a way that you can uh, contemplate or build toward or set a narrative for in a campaign, okay? Doesn't mean campaigns aren't important, but it also means that the fundamentals of a race are far, far more important. And that's why I disagree with a lot of the academics who look at this race and are saying, Ron DeSantis is much more competitive in the general election. Yeah, well, he may be, but his fundamentals are not that much different than Donald Trump's, and they're gonna get worse as DeSantis goes to the right to consolidate Trump's base supporters because Trump ain't going to just let them go. He's going to go harder to the right. He's going to be attacking DeSantis. He just posted, by the way, if you haven't read this, Donald Trump just posted a million and a half negative ad dollar ad buy on Ron DeSantis. Trump, and this is smart, by the way, Trump is trying to finish off DeSantis before he announces for president. That's a really smart tactic that nobody is talking about. So you're hearing about here a mic drop first. Why is Donald Trump going negative on DeSantis? The reason why is because his people will be thinking like I'm thinking. And if his negatives get so high that he can't recover, not only in a primary, but in a general, it does not make sense to run. I still think there's a 20% chance that DeSantis doesn't run. Okay. He's biding his time. He's going to wait as long as he possibly can to actually make the announcements to run. That's the smart thing to do. But Donald Trump is not going to go quietly. He's going to raise DeSantis's negatives, 
when DeSantis can't respond because he's not a formal candidate yet, or at least respond the way that he should or needs to, to set the frame for the campaign in a way that he can benefit from it. And that really, really damages his positioning. So again, the past couple of months, you guys have heard me saying, this is what DeSantis is, is likely gonna do. It's exactly what he should do. The indictments now have begun. You're hearing DeSantis and other candidates, including people like Youngkin and the rest of the Republican establishment now saying, this is a banana republic. It's a third world country. This isn't a real democracy. The Democrats are trying to, to you know, behave like we would by you know jailing their, their political opposition. That message doesn't work outside of the Republican base. Don't be worried about that message. Attack, 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 because you're not trying to convince Republicans here. Okay? And, and I'm not saying that there aren't Republican votes to be had. You guys heard me say this on the Lincoln Project and for the years afterwards going into the midterms that this is where you needed to go. That's fine. I believe, however, right now, tactically, I would be shifting to drive aggressively and 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 in a very forward uh, um, positioning with independence, especially to, to give as much oxygen as you possibly can to Donald Trump, because the more it's about Trump, the more he's losing that independent vote. And I don't care if he consolidates 100% of the Republican base again, which he won't. We'll get to that in a second. But let's say he does, but he's losing 60-40 to independence. Biden wins in a significant electoral contest by significant numbers. It's not going to be 30, 40 electoral votes. It could be 70, 80. It could be bigger. North Carolina starts to come into play. Um, you could see uh, some outliers like a, like an Iowa starts to bend back. Um, you could see some other states shift back into position. You could even see Florida tighten up, okay? You all know that I believe Florida's a red state. I'm, I'm convinced of that. I'm staying with that. But if the numbers get so bad, the negatives get so high with independence, you could see a very significant narrowing in some of these red states. And that causes a whole lot of tactical problems in the stretch of a campaign. So set that aside. That is what I'm saying is happening with the indictments right now. It benefits Trump politically in the Republican primary, but it doesn't make that much of a difference because he was he's in a stronger position than most people think he is in any way. But it's hurting him in the general. But he was already in a weak position in the general anyway. So he's getting weaker in the general. He's getting stronger in the primary. There's no or little oxygen for DeSantis to maneuver. There's very little that DeSantis can do right now to maneuver or say or do anything that gives him any sort of, 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 of lane or messaging to actually work with. And the question really is, you're going to hear a few Republican consultants kind of chattering to nobody saying, Hey, maybe Donald Trump's getting weaker in the general. Maybe we ought to start thinking about this guy, Ron DeSantis. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is going to be getting the minions out saying they're coming after you after they come after me. This is a banana republic. I didn't do any of this. You know that none of this happened. This is the deep state and they're attacking me and blah, 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 blah. Okay. That's the basic net effect. I'm also not going to suggest, by the way, jump in with questions here too, folks. Because I'm going to get to the Gavin stuff here, but you, you guys have got to have a ton of questions because this shit's just blown up over the past couple of hours. There's a lot that's going on. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Let's talk it out. Let's kind of walk through some of these demos. But um, I was going to say something else before I went off on that tangent, and I don't remember what it was. Anybody? Somebody want to jump into the queue? 
We've got some regular questioners here too, so I know there's some questions to be asked. If not, I'm going to go into the Gavin Newsom stuff. Doesn't mean we can't come back. When? There we go. I knew somebody would bail me out. Hey, is this working? It's working. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Finally have a question. Isn't DeSantis yeah. also running into problems because right now he'd have to resign from the governorship until the legislature changes the law, Florida law? Yeah. And I, um, I know they're already floating a bill, but. Yeah, they'll be floating a bill and then Trump will kind of start squeezing him a little bit. Is this because of the constitutional requirement of having them coming from different states? No, it's Florida law. It's Florida law. Yeah. See, look, it's, a, it's an excellent point. Let, let, let me, let, let, I don't want to get too much into the legal part because I, I don't, going honestly, I don't know the law. So this is helpful. And maybe you can share with the, with the listeners some of this. But, but let, me, let me say this, and, and I've been saying this for some time. I'm not saying it's, I'm putting it about 20%, but I think it's a bigger number than most prognosticators suggest it is. I'm still not convinced the stances gets into the race. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Just as a political professional, like if I'm his, if I, if I was hired to, to, to manage his career, I'm looking at these numbers and I'm looking at the political environment. And the best opportunity here is if Trump's legal problems become so big that he, um, he then does start to implode and hemorrhage and you emerge as the standard bearer. Okay. Yeah. That, 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 that is not a good strategy. When your whole strategy is predicated on somebody else's life imploding, that's not a good place to be versus, okay. Versus sticking around governing, having everybody wish you would have run and saved them from the immolation that is going to be coming and position yourself to be able to be the standard bearer, the next person in waiting in 2028. Guy's a young man, he's got a bright future ahead of him. You can either run against the Trump buzzsaw while he's a, a starving feral cat cornered with his whole life about to collapse and he's got nothing but fangs and, and, and claws out. And you want to walk into that scenario when this guy's got a significant base that you need? Oh, and by the way, the likelihood of him bailing if you did beat him in that primary and running an independent campaign and ensuring your defeat, like that's the alternative? Yeah. Let the party implode. Let it blow up. Let it break. And you be the guy who comes in on the white stallion at the end saying, if only you guys would have followed me, then we would have won this thing. You got, you know, eight years of Joe Biden. The country's going to be ready for a change. That's the Ron DeSantis I want to be. That's where that's where I want my candidate position. It's really, really hard because four years is a very long time in politics to wait. But Nixon did it. Dole did it. Uh, Bush Sr. did it. Ronald Reagan did it. It's not unheard of. It's, it, it's not unheard of. In fact, it shows some statesmanship. It allows you to build that resume a little bit more. And most importantly, it allows you to avoid this complete, this complete nightmare uh, of where Donald Trump is at. Remember, and I'm sorry, but I'm gonna let you talk a little bit more about the, the legal because I'm interested about, uh, on this too. But, but before we get there, guys, Donald Trump is, he's fucking desperate, okay? You don't want to be, you don't want to go into a boxing match with a guy who's, who's, you know, 
fighting with sharpened claws anyway. Like you've got your gloves on and, and he's just fighting with bare fists and, and scratching at your eyeballs. You don't want that fight anyway. Dude is desperate. He has no other options. If he does not win, he's going to go to jail. Like everything is going to collapse. And worse than that is if he loses in the primary, he's really screwed because he doesn't even have his base level of support to work with when another Republican replaces him as the new titular head of the party. Like that is not a good place that, to, to go into a battle with Donald Trump on. And I'm not saying he can't be beat. I'm saying I, I you, you got to pick your fights. And this is not one that I would want to pick. It's not where I would want to be right now. No, if he was smart, he'd just lay low and come up like the phoenix after the explosion. That's exactly right. And uh, Johnny's mentioning that Chris Christie did it. Look, a lot of them have done it unsuccessfully, including some of the people that I mentioned. Bob Dole was never president, Right. I'm not saying it's, it's the only successful strategy. What I'm saying is the roadmap from a data perspective for DeSantis to actually win this race is not good. It is not good. Now, I value candidates who are like, I don't care what the odds are. You know, we'll make our odds and we'll make our way because that is also true, too. Okay, there's a reason why we run campaigns and we get into these campaigns because campaigns do matter and the trajectories of races do change. Would I have advised Barack Obama to get in against Hillary Clinton in 2008? I would have been the guy saying, I don't think this is a good idea. The data says a black man can't win President of the United States, by the way, absolutely true. Anybody following just a pure data model would have said that. All the data has said that, and yet he wins. All the data said Donald Trump can't win, and yet he wins. So I'm not going to suggest that it's not possible. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is there's a better path for a younger person like Ron DeSantis to run, to lead the party with better options to be president than right now. I don't, I don't, I would not run against Donald Trump right now. And again, what I was talking about earlier was why Trump is driving his negatives up. The more he narrows the lane for DeSantis, who's already on a skinny goat path with you know, few chances of success, is once that path gets so narrow, DeSantis says, I ain't running this cycle. Love you. I'm going to go work for the nominee. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm not running. I'm going to go focus on fighting Disney and transgender kids and banning books. Who the hell is going to take on Donald Trump? Nikki Haley? Mike Pence? Like it's <laughs> over. Donald Trump becomes the nominee de facto. Without Don Ron DeSantis, nobody is going to emerge. You'll see some people pop up into the mid-teens, and then he'll swat them down, and there'll, there'll be two or three people, and, and then it's, it's over. It's done. It'll be an embarrassment, and then the Republicans will have a guy literally running for sitting in an orange jumpsuit from a jail cell. Like, that is a very real possibility. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. I'm not kidding. In fact, I think that that's Trump's best chance at, at a legal strategy is running for president of the United States. I, I, he just doesn't have any options left. So, talk, do you, Grant, can you, can you explore a little bit more some of the legal reasons why this isn't I mean, possible? I'm not in Florida, but from what I've read, there's either in the Constitution, laws, whatever, that somebody has to resign. He'd have to resign to go on the campaign once he officially announces. 
but the legislature currently is floating a bill that would remove that problem. Not Florida. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. Um, um, and I, I, I can't speak to that. I, I don't know. I'm just looking at the political calculation and it's just, it's just not a good roadmap. I just don't see how that happens. Uh, politically, how he wins. I, I'm, again, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm too old to say this can't happen. But the fundamentals of the race don't look good for anybody challenging an incumbent right now. And things are are likely to get better before they're they are to get worse. Um, and 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 both of these nominees, both of the leading nominees for the Republican you know banner, have really high negatives at a time when the crazy in their party is becoming louder and becoming more dominant. Like all these investigations, this stuff, bring Dr. Fauci up. This ain't gonna help you guys. It's, gonna, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's not. It, it's not It's not a good look. It doesn't work for anybody beyond. Do whatever it takes to become the speaker. He's letting the, the crazies, you know, run roughshod and do whatever they want to. McConnell's not well. You know, there's no heir apparent. Tim Scott wanted it. I think he put together six or eight votes against McConnell. The, the heir apparent is not likely to be Rick Scott. I, I don't know where the party's going. And it's, 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 this was all predictable. Hell, I've been predicting it. Many of you were predicting it. Everybody at the Lincoln Project was saying this party is going to come to a an ignominious end and it's going to crash and burn in a radiated ruin because it, it has it coming. It's completely lost its core. It's completely lost its anchor. And any organization that has no vision, has no anchor, has no mission statement, has no values, especially in a political environment, especially in a political environment led by a crook, is going to end. It doesn't end well. So that's, uh, look, I mean, I appreciate it. Uh, Gwen, great, great question. Thanks for bringing that up. I apologize for not being as well-versed in that as I should be. Um, if there are any other questions, go ahead and jump in. Say um, the one thing that does give me, and again, if, if there was ever a time when Gavin Newsom was gonna announce the creation of this type of an infrastructure and this type of a program or an effort, today's a pretty damn good day. Now, a lot of it's getting swallowed up, by the, the 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 big news of the day, which are the indictments. But folks, you, to understand the way, uh, and the LA Times, if if uh, just just you know wrote this this story, Taryn Luna is a reporter. I spent some time with this afternoon um, on, on the Gavin Newsom story. Um, if you could, um, if moderator could find that, put that link in the room chats too. Take a look at this story, okay? One of the things that I really pointed out to this reporter was this. I said. The Lincoln Project filled up a void that the Democrats did not have the infrastructure to respond to. So if you're always going like, what is with the crazy in the Republican Party? How are they hearing all this stuff? Article's been posted in the chat. Thank you. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to um, understand how that media bubble works, bubbling up from small blog posts, going on to larger influencers, the echo chambers of the, you know, there's there's the CPAC infrastructure, there's the Charlie Kirk infrastructure. Think about how many voices there are in that right-wing media echo chamber with significant built-out infrastructure. And then ask yourself, where are those voices on the Democratic side? 
They don't have them. What they largely rely on is some institutional stuff, but not much. Um, they rely on the politicians themselves, which are never good messengers. They're good cultural warriors, and Democrats are figuring that out, especially Gavin Newsom. And then they've relied on the mainstream media. Let's just call it that, the legacy media, the traditional media, whatever the term is. But remember, most of those media members are, are credible journalists who are looking to be objective and to present the news as it is. So the Democrats are relying on the media to give an objective, fair viewpoint. And the Republicans have created their own bubble system where they're not even, there's no, there's no charade of objectivity. It's, it's all about radicalizing. It's all about mobilizing. It's all about anger and it's all about fear. And when you feed that beast for long enough, they're not even listening or concerned about what is really happening in the real world. Hell, they create their own world. Okay. And I'm not suggesting that the Democrats need to do that. But what I am suggesting is the Democrats need to learn to fight with those same tactics in a way that Republicans are really, really good at. And I'm proud of what we did with the Lincoln Project because the Democrats just didn't get it. And so we saddled up, rode into that maelstrom and fought back the way that we knew that the Republicans were going to come. And I think we did a damn good job of that. I think that what Gavin Newsom is, he's figured that out. So here's what Gavin Newsom's going to do. He's creating this new campaign for democracy. Good framing. If you don't think it's a good frame, ask yourself why Joe Biden used the same framing twice, twice in a way a U.S. president never has prior to the midterms and did it very successfully. He's doing it because he's trying to highlight to those independent voters and to those college-educated Republicans and to those working-class Hispanics and African-Americans and Asians who are leaving the Democratic Party, he's using those issues to bring those people back. Let me say, rephrase that. He's not trying to bring them back. He's trying to prevent them from going to the crazy in the Republican Party. It's a big difference. It sounds like it's the same thing. It's not. And, and Newsom understands that. How do I know that? Because he's going to Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. He's going to the deep south. I think he's going to the Museum of Lynching. He's going to go into classrooms. He's going to be talking about uh, cities in Mississippi that are preventing people from voting. He's going to be in the Deep South setting a narrative in the way a president of the United States cannot to be the tip of the spear to drive these issues home. Okay. Does that mean the Democratic Party is going to lose more non-college educated white voters? Possibly. Possibly. But it also means that they will lose as much or more or enough white suburban college educated voters that have been leaving because of cultural issues for the past two election cycles. So what we did in the Lincoln Project, we're, we're running ads called, you know, of, of Trump defending the Confederate statues. The Republican Party becomes a party of the Confederacy. White suburban women in, in Michigan start going, I, I'm, this, I'm not comfortable with this. Like, I want my tax cuts. I think the Democrats are a little bit kooky. But, the, but they're defending the Confederacy and, and they want to outlaw abortion. Like, I'm not going there. Like, I can't do it anymore, right? I'm not, I, I've, I've held my nose and voted long enough for these clowns not doing it anymore. That's why it's so important. Biden can't do that and he shouldn't do that as President of the United States. Can't really have the VP do that or maybe you can, I don't know, but for whatever reason they weren't. 
And so Gavin steps into that void. Now remember, Gavin has a massive social media infrastructure, bigger than any other governor, I think in the state, uh, in the country. Maybe DeSantis is bigger, I don't know. Somebody can check right now and see how many Twitter followers DeSantis has versus Gavin Newsom. It would be great to kind of find out and post that up there um, uh, in the the chat just so we get a sense. But my guess is they're probably the top two or at least they're two of the biggest of the five governors in in, in the country, right? Whitmer's not gonna have as many as a Gavin Newsom, right? Klobuchar's not gonna have as many as a Gavin Newsom. And so just using that basic Twitter following and that social media infrastructure to create their own echo chambers on aggressively hitting Republicans on these issues and on these frames that chips away at their base is a damn good strategy. It reinforces everything I was just saying about the negative that DeSantis and Trump have. It reinforces all of it tenfold. So you you will sometimes run across these folks, by the way. DeSantis has 4 million, Newsom has 2 million. There you go. How many does Abbott have? Let's check, let's check Abbott in Texas. So maybe there's, uh, you may uh, find or you may see, and remember, you know, a lot of people like Gavin Newsom and the Democratic Party, but Ron DeSantis is the savior, is being viewed as the savior of the Republican Party by, I would say, you know, a good 30% of the Republican Party. Abbott's got 1 million. So my guess is they're probably, you know, up towards the top. Abbott's got a million in Texas. DeSantis has 4 million in Florida. Newsom has 2 million in California. Okay. This infrastructure, this this surrogate fight is going to increasingly define the terms. It allows Biden to be presidential. Okay. And it also prevents the need for Republicans to have to step in there and do the work that Democrats can be doing if the Democrats start engaging and doing this very aggressively themselves. Raises more money, builds more internal infrastructure, allows them to control the message more. Most importantly, somebody had finally figured out that they're going to have to use the same tactics and the same fight against the Republicans that the Republicans have been using as a minority party, by the way, to rip the bark off of the Democrats and just kick the shit out of them. Just look, as a minority party, we have had to fight differently. We've had to set the frame of our issues on a different battlefield than where the Democrats are at. Because if we don't, we're going to lose. So we lull you guys into these fights. Critical race theory. Youngkin starts talking about critical race theory. And the Democrats then respond. And they're arguing about why it is and why it's not critical race theory. And blah, blah, blah. And then you force them into this position of defending, you know, drag queens. And I'm not saying there's anything right or wrong about it. I'm saying you're fighting the wrong fucking fight if you think that that's going to help you win. It's not where people are at. Turn the tables on them. Go, go talk about the Museum of Lynching and why you've got this stuff in the South. Did you know that Florida still celebrates Confederate Flag Day? No, I didn't either. But the Democrats ought to be talking about that. Why aren't we talking about that? Go frame it that way. Let the Republicans answer these questions. That's why I think that all of this stuff was so important uh, when it was brought up by Republicans because Democrats just didn't have, I don't think, the capacity or the stomach to do it. I don't, I don't know that um, if, if the Democrats are doing it themselves that, that there needs to be another out, outward vehicle from outside to kind of bring those things up. Amy, you're up. You're in the queue. What you got for us? Hi, Mike. Mike. Thank you so much. I, I totally agree. As a lifelong Democrat, I'm so tired of Democrats bringing a knife to a gunfight. And so, you know, 
yeah. happy to see. Thank you for posting that on Gavin Newsom and happy to see that he's bringing a gun, <laughs> I guess. Um, a little bit yeah. off topic, but something that also is coming up um, that I'm kind of wondering your thoughts in terms of will it influence anything, uh, it, which is the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News. We talk about the right wing news bubble and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it seems like Fox is in a bad position. Uh, but what I, I'm, I have to be honest, I'm skeptical. Even if Fox, if Fox loses, I kind of just don't feel like it's going to have any impact at all. Uh, and maybe I'm just too pessimistic. So anyway, if you're talking to that. No, no. Look, no, I think it's a fantastic question. And I agree with you. Look, I think that this really does hurt Fox News a lot, not just in the pocketbook. And it's going to be extraordinary the way that they are hurt. I think Rupert Murdoch is going to have to make a very different calculation because what's going to happen is the right wing media bubble is going to it's going to shatter. It's going to be like Al Qaeda. Right. Once you cut the head off of Osama bin Laden, it's literally designed to separate and scatter so that you can't kill it all in one fell swoop. There will be the Newsmaxes and the OANNs, and some of them have their own financial problems, by the way. But that you will see an emergence of a bunch of smaller, different niche audiences. Ultimately, I believe this is a good development. And the reason why is this. The American right, as we know it, is not ideologically driven. There is no ideological core. Say what you will about the left, and I've got a lot of criticisms about the American left, but really the left is fundamentally still having a healthy discussion about the appropriate size and role of government. There's the Bernie Sanders, there's the Elizabeth Warrens, there's the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes out there that are saying government needs to be much, 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 much bigger. Then there's the Bidens, the Klobuchars, the Buddha judges saying, well, it's, we should, government can play a good active role, but it shouldn't be that big. That's a healthy debate. The Republicans are talking about whether or not we should have books banned and drag queen shows and how many AR 15s you should arm your kids with for your Christmas card uh, that year. Okay. That's not healthy. That's not a real discussion. They're not having ideological discussions anymore. It's all performative. It's a performative nature of politics. It's degraded into that. Why is that important? It's important because once you lose the mouthpiece, and as I've shared before, I still think the most powerful figure on the American right is not Donald Trump. I think it's Tucker Carlson, mm -hmm. who doesn't like Trump, by the way. Right? We've all seen text messages now. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson gives the American right its marching orders. He tells them what to hate. He tells them who not to like. He tells them who the enemy is every weeknight. Mm -hmm. Okay? That is a very powerful position to be in. If that begins to splinter and it's not ideologically driven and there's no common thread other than personality, the right fractures the way that it absolutely should. Once the Republican Party gave up its conservative, classical conservative positions under Donald Trump and said, we're going to be a populist nationalist party it absolutely shatter and become nothing more than it is like al-qaeda the once osama bin laden is gone it goes into a bunch of small sleeper cells and the, the good news for the country is we can recover from that doesn't mean it's going to be easy it's not going to happen in one election cycle this is a demographic bubble okay 
What you really need to be worried about is the emergence of another charismatic figure like a Donald Trump taking the place and putting all those pieces back together. I think that's very, very, very unlikely. I think it's much more likely that if as Fox News loses its stature, as Donald Trump starts to weaken with, uh, with you know, or, or gets more intense in his own support, you're going to see the emergence right-wing media bubble will become so scattered that the conspiracy theory, the fueled Reaganites, the Federalist Society types, the libertarian wings, they will all move in their own different directions. And you will find a nominee that will kind of pull people somewhat together, but not to the numbers that you're going to need to rebuild a party. I think it's far more likely that it disintegrates and breaks apart and shatters into many pieces. And I think once Fox News I don't, look, Fox isn't going to just shut it off one day on a Friday afternoon and say, hey, we're off the air. It's going to slowly lose market share to not just one or two, but to many different fragments. Happening is extraordinarily significant. Okay. Th- thank you so much. That that uh, gives, gives me a little bit of um, uh, celebration, I, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. Look, I know it's exhausting, guys. I know this fight has felt like, oh, my God, is this still going? Is the crazy still there? But if you stop and think about it and rest a little bit, get off social media, go for a nice walk. If the weather's decent, you're going to be like, you know what? We're winning this fight. doesn't mean you give up. We have to be very, very vigilant for a while. It's going to go on for a while. But I think we're all kind of keenly aware that uh, we're in a good space. Now, could it come back? Absolutely. Could Trump win? Yes. Could DeSantis win? Yes. But the- same direction that it always was. And I think in a generation when we look back, the real anomaly is going to be the 2016 election cycle when we're like, what the fuck happened? That's when all this allowed this 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 shock that just changed all of our perceptions of our country, our democracy, our ideals. And um, we've been kind of fighting to get them back. But look, the good guys won in 2018. The good guys won in 2020. The good guys won in 2022, okay? That, if you look at California with that same trajectory, you know, Republicans won overwhelmingly in 1994 in California. Democrats won in 96. They won in 98. They won in 2000, 2002, 2004. Like, it, it, they're, they're, the, the Republicans and the bad elements coming back are anomalous. They do pop up in history, and I'm not suggesting that it's over. I'm saying look at the data and look at the arc, Okay. This older demographic of kind of old white non-college educated folks uh, are, are, you know, they're dying as fast as a new emergent non-college educated white working class Latino workforce is replacing them. And, and they're not knee-jerk Democrats, by the way. That's the hope I have for the Latino community is I think the chances are that the Latinos actually save American style democracy because they're not they're rejecting both the extremes of both parties. They're really the potential for them moderating both parties and getting the Democrats to get the head out of their ass and get Republicans to quit burning crosses at people's yards is getting better. And it's starting to come back and say, wait a second, let's get back to some sense of normalcy here and let's start governing again. So I hope uh, that yes. was helpful, Amy. Uh, are there any, any, thank you so much for jumping up on, onto the stage. Guys, are there any other questions? 
By the way, Mike Pence just made an announcement saying that the uh, indictment of Donald Trump is an outrage, quote, outrage in an exclusive CNN interview. So, again, the anti-Trump land, it, it's it's so small. Uh, and, and, you know, anytime there's more than one candidate, it's, it's too small for one candidate. OK, you throw in a Pence, you throw in a DeSantis, you throw in a Haley, you throw in a Chris Christie, you throw in, you know, Asa Hutchinson, you throw in whoever. There's just there's not that much lane there. There's not that much. There's not that much. Um, um, yeah. Esther, good guys barely won. Let me break this to you, by the way. In history, the good guys always barely win. Okay. I you put this on my on my t-shirt, right? And the Mike Madrid Tuxedo Chuck Rocha calls it. History is made on the margins. Okay. Look back at how close every freaking thing has always been. 90% of it is the good guys barely winning. That's why it's important to get involved, guys. Every voice makes a difference. So, yeah, don't buy the optimism. Not expecting you to. I'm not here to cheer you up. I'm here to present data and talk to you about the way uh, political campaigns work. Uh, am I always right? No. Have I been right a lot lately? Yeah, because the data is getting clearer. It's not getting more muddied. It's becoming clearer on what the trajectory is. Okay? So, um, I'm, I, you know, a lot of you guys have, have started following me and, and giving me feedback. I'm appreciative because I've made you feel better in very unsettling times. Um, but like, you know, I was telling you guys in the early days of the 2022 midterms, unless something extraordinary happens, the Democrats can completely get their asses kicked. And the truth of the matter is, had Dobbs not happened, I think that the Democrats would have um, gotten their asses kicked. So th that's just what the data says. And that's what I'm going to tell you what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not always reading it right, but I've been doing this for you know 30 years. I think um, even if I'm not right on, uh, the trajectory of what I'm saying is, is usually pointing in the right direction. And if I'm not right on the data, then I try to give you an understanding of what's going on on the inside of the campaign. So remember, history is made on the margins. Josh, go ahead and unmute. See you up there in the queue. Yeah, thanks for joining us tonight. night but it goes to messaging i feel like everything goes back to messaging yeah uh so i'm here in indiana and in 2022 everything in the elections was about culture wars and that didn't really turn democrats out here yeah. but the whole time i kept hearing people say no no, no you got to focus on economic you know uh, working class issues so looking to the state right next to us i thought that's what tim ryan was doing really well yeah but then he got beat pretty well and you mentioned and a couple podcasts ago, just very quickly, you mentioned something like he was focusing on the wrong people. And I was wondering if you could just expand on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I love this. Uh, actually writing, um, when I hop off. Uh, the Democrats have lost the white working class vote in a way that they're not going to get back. And I'm going to say not get back ever. Okay. Uh, and there's a reason why largely it's demographic. But Tim Ryan's campaign, and I, I think Tim Ryan's a fine guy, and I like where he's going. And if uh, I'm not a Democrat, but if I were supporting a Democrat, he's the kind of Democrat I would support. But Tim Ryan was not going to win. Tim Ryan was never going to win. And I said that early on. And the reason why is because Ohio has too many of this demographic that used to be a Reagan Democrat, a working class Democrat, a hard hats Democrat, people who took lunch pails. 
the Democratic Party, because it's run by white elites, usually Ivy League graduated elites, they believe that the future of the party is with Tim Ryan's and Amy Klobuchar's. It's working class messaging to people in the Midwest and the Rust Belt states. That's fucking crazy. Excuse my French. They're wrong. They've lost that vote and it's not coming back. If they could get that vote back, they would become a, you know so dominant in the country that we wouldn't have to discuss any other demographic. They're not. That is now literally the central base of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is consolidating those votes at a rate faster than I think any consolidation since probably the South realigned in 1994 or since black voters moved from Republicans to Democrats in 1964, okay? That's how fast it's happening. If the Democrats want to get back to being a working class party, and they should, okay, because 60% of voters don't have a college degree. We are still a working class country, even though there's extraordinary pressures on the working class. Focus on Hispanics. Focus on African Americans. Focus on recruiting Asian American candidates. You're not going to get the white working class back for both economic reasons and cultural reasons. The Democratic Party is too much of a college-educated white party. The cultural values that it espouses are not issues that are comfortable with white, non-college-educated, working-class people. Okay, And the rising push for environmentalism and the concern about global warming, which I think is a very legitimate, important concern, is anathema to that working class voter who's working in manufacturing, working in construction, working in energy, working in agriculture, working in forestry, working in mining, working in basically anything you're working with your hands, is the, the, the college-educated, high-tech, uh, well-skilled workforce, those policy sets, which are priorities for the Democratic Party, run counter. at. So for both racial, ethnic, and cultural reasons and economic reasons, I guess that's three, not two, all of those reasons have created a tribal community of white non-college educated voters identifying almost entirely with the Republican brand. There's nobody who's Tim Ryan enough or Amy Klobuchar enough to get in there and break that off. It's literally the identity of this tribe. So stop trying and start getting, stop voters that from Hispanics from shifting right. The fastest growing segment of the electorate is Hispanic. It's the working class, non-college educated Hispanic. Listen to these Mexican-American, Cortez Master. Listen to these voters, these, these politicians that are also using a working class, racially, ethnically sensitive and inclusive message that is working to win in the states that the Democrats can win in. Not gonna win Ohio. You're not, not gonna win, so quit trying. Not gonna win Iowa anymore, quit trying. Go to states like Arizona, where there are a growing number of working class Latinos. Go to Georgia, where there's black and brown people there that are in not only the working class, but in the middle class, in the suburbs around Atlanta. Go to North Carolina, where there's a growing
the story of Virginia. That's why Virginia is, is not a red state and hasn't been for a long time. That's the story of Colorado. That's the story of, you know, basically, it's certainly the story of California. It's what moved Nevada into a red position. All of that is not because the white working class voter was coming back or was even a swing voter. It's because they're being replaced. The working class is being replaced. The white working class is being replaced by working class black and brown people. And they are more racially inclusive and will listen to Democrats more even if they're anti-industry or they're able to make their living. Now, the Democrats are losing that vote because Democrats aren't much of a working class party anymore uh, and becoming less so all the time, but they can still win enough of that share of black and brown voters to be competitive and or dominant in some of these states. Uh, Texas, excellent example. So Mike, if that's true, then explain Texas. I'll explain Texas, white people. Whites vote, college educated whites and non-college educated whites in Texas are very conservative. They're Republicans. I've done whole episodes on this. Take That's very different than uh, in California where the white vote is split 50-50, which is why California is as blue as it is. It's not because of the a Latino vote. It's not because of the African-American or the Asian vote, all of which break Democrat. Uh, 70% of voters in California are still white, okay? 35% are Republican, 35% are Democrat. That's why Republicans get about 33 to 35% of the statewide vote in California. That's it. It's a floor and a ceiling. They'll never get more. They'll never get less. You go to Texas, if you went to college and you're white in Texas, you're a Republican. If you're white and you didn't go to college and you live in Texas, you're a Republican, (laughs) right? White people in Texas are overwhelmingly Republican. A little bit less so, especially in the urban core, Austin, DFW, Houston, some of these bigger cities. But rural Texas, and there's a lot of votes in rural Texas, that's big country, overwhelmingly red country. That's why I bet they shouldn't have been in red counties. I did a whole episode on that too. So I hope that was helpful. But that's, that's the answer. That's the reason. Uh, the, 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 it's not the, the Democrats have to really decide if they want to be a working class party or not again. And it's getting harder and harder every day as they're winning more and more people on these cultural issues, because not only are they bringing people over with their cultural issues, they're bringing in people with economic issues that are more focused on high tech, high skilled workers that are more interested, again, very legitimately so on issues that are anathema to working class people in the industries that they make a living in. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Great question, Josh. Thanks for coming up. Peggy, let's wrap up the phones with you, my dear. Sounds like you've been out busy organizing, but decided to join us from the car. We hear you. Am I echoing? That's a tad. Anyway, am I echoing? Am I okay? You're okay, but just ask the question and then hit mute. You're okay, but just ask the question and then hit mute. Okay. So out here in Suffolk County, Long Island, I don't know. I mean, it's all red now, right? That may change in the next election, but I don't know. But it's mostly, I think it's mostly middle class white, working class white voters who are MAGA now. Or mostly MAGA. Yeah. 
that he's got to, you know, he's got to do the thing like Joe Biden's doing. Swinging to the right a little bit, but he's a Democrat. What, what, what do we do? Go ahead, mute. <laughs> yeah. So look, um, look, that's exactly right. And look, look at the room chat here with, with North Squatch. Look, this is very hard medicine for Democrats to take because they are absolutely convinced that they are the ones that are, are the working class party. And look, look at the example. Starbucks. Okay. This is a this is a horrible example of how out of touch Democrats are. Okay. Baristas are not jobs now or even as union members will they be professions for people that will be able to buy a home and raise a family of four on. Okay. Those days are gone. Okay. I don't care what Bernie Sanders does. I don't care how much he wishes it weren't so. I don't care how much he that's that's still not a sustainable living wage. Okay, you have to promote industries that lift people out of poverty. Quit saying that Starbucks is a profession and acting like Bernie Sanders is a hero and doing something for poor and working class people because he's championing the unionization of Starbucks. Get out of Starbucks. Right there with you, Mike. Right there with you. (laughs) Okay. This stuff drives me freaking crazy. And it, it, it is exactly why the Democrats tell the working men and women of this country that they're out of touch because they are okay there's nothing wrong by going and doing a a job that is providing for them okay and i'm sick and tired of democrats acting like adding two or three bucks to the minimum wage is a solution to working class problems because it's not, okay? It's your way of saying, I don't understand you and I don't care about you and I still want my $5 mocha, okay? But I'm not, you know, I don't want to really do anything that's going to harm my way of life or my quality of life by actually allowing you to work in an industry that will allow you to support your family. Okay, and if you don't take, believe Mike Madrid, then look at what's happening with working class voters because they're voting that way. It's not Mike Madrid saying this; it's working class voters saying that. Okay, and if you don't get that, then that's the problem with the Democratic Party in a nutshell. Okay, unionization is fine, and I support unionization, especially in the private sector, not so much in the public sector. But if you think that unionizing our workforce is going to solve the problems, man, you are stuck in the 1950s, 1960s, okay? That all ended in the 1980s, not because Ronald Reagan was a big, bad, evil man. It's because the global economy works that way, okay? There's no stopping that. Markets are going to do what markets do, okay? The best way you can help people is to build an economy that allows people to climb up economically. 
It's not by government programs. And if you feel that that's the Republican in me coming out, then you know what? Listen to Joe Biden saying the same damn thing. Who, by the way, Joe Biden is to the right on me by a wide shot on immigration. He's also to the right on me on oil drilling in Alaska. Okay? So let's not, you know, immediately fall into our partisan silos here. That's just good governance. You have to make be the party of the working class, okay? Democrats are the party of the poor. I'm not taking that away from them. But if you think the poor and the working class are the same, you don't understand America, okay? The Democrats support a social safety net for the poor, and I support most of those efforts to do that. But the, the Democratic Party is viewed either real or through perception, and I think it's very real. But let's say I'm wrong, let's say it's perception. Don't take my word for it, take working class people's uh, word for it. That they are that the Democrats are the enemy of the working man because of the industries that they attack and don't allow them to, to provide for their families or to provide for the economic opportunities that everybody else has. I don't want to serve you coffee, rich people. Okay, it's not that's not the way people should be treated. That's not a solution, Bernie Sanders. Sorry, that's my diatribe, but I've had it with that. So, guys, I've got to call it tonight. Thanks for tuning in to Mic Drop, and we will talk to you guys.